Good morning. I want to start off today with a word of prayer, uh, specifically for Dave. Uh, he is not doing great, uh, down on his back, and he's in the hospital. They can't exactly figure out what's going on. They're trying to pull him off some medicine, and so he just needs uh, some encouragement and support and prayers. So I want to start with that, and I also want to just pray for uh, the family of Camille, the friends of Camille. Our hearts are broken today. I know I'm heavy-hearted. Um uh, to not get to see her big smile and face, big smile that she had, and the warm hugs that she would give. And, um, you know, we just, we need to support each other during this time. So let, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for this beautiful day. And we just ask that you'll be with Dave, Lord, right now. I pray that he will just be, uh, Lord, healed. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will, you will touch him, Lord, and take away all these things that the doctors can't figure out. All these symptoms will go away. Uh, Lord, that you'll strengthen his back and, and everything else, Lord. And uh, in the meantime, between now and the, and the day of healing for him, Lord, I pray that you will just encourage him. And Lord, uh, re- remind him and reassure him that you're with him and that you're going to get him through it. And Lord, I pray as a church family, we can love and support him in the way that he's always loved and supported us. Uh, so bless him, Lord. Uh, we also ask that you will just be with Camille's family and um, all her friends and everybody here at church. Lord, our hearts are heavy. But you promise us that you are near to the brokenhearted. So we claim that promise today. Lord, please come and guard us, our hearts and minds, with your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm so glad to see each and every one of you, and uh, it's always a privilege to share with you today. And we're going we're gonna to begin today a very interesting conversation, and I pray that this is just the beginning of uh, some thinking that we need to do. I want to talk to you today about, uh, my sermon title is, An Introduction to the End of the World. An Introduction to the end of the world. And I say it's an introduction because this is actually part one of a four-part, maybe a five-part sermon, okay? So it's not a sermon series. It's just one sermon, okay? And so in order for you to get the the full picture of what we're communicating today, you really need to make a plan to be back here next Sunday, the following Sunday, the following Sunday. And between now and then, if this really, and this may um, unsettle some of you, because I'm going to challenge some of, of the ways you've always looked at the Bible over the next few weeks. And so um, this is the way it works in a family. Uh, if ever there's like a, a disagreement or some uncertainty, what family does is they call and they say, hey, let's sit down and have a cup of coffee and let's figure this out. Okay? So that's all of you in this room. We're all making an agreement that we're going to, if we have some sort of uncertainties after this conversation, that We'll sit down and we'll talk about it. Thumbs up? Okay. All right. Mark chapter 13 is where we're hanging out today. I want to begin by affirming some things. I don't want any confusion about any of this. Uh, Number one, I am absolutely convinced uh, that history will culminate in a final glorious event. Uh, Traditional, historical, orthodox Christianity has said that from the beginning. It is clear in the Bible that that will happen. One day, one literal day in the future... The heavens will open up, the trumpet will sound, the resurrected king, Jesus Christ, will appear. He will judge the living and the dead. He will reward the righteous. He will punish the rebels, and he will fully manifest his heavenly kingdom. And so I affirm 100% all those things. All those things will happen according to the scriptures. However, there is a lot of disagreement and a lot of confusion about the logistics of that culminating event. And that's what I want to talk about over the next several weeks. When I was seven years old, I went to church with my granny. I didn't always go to church. Sometimes uh, I would spend the weekend with my grandparents. And on those weekends, my granny and I, we would catch the church bus, and we would go to the Revival Tabernacle on Versailles Road in Lexington. Uh, The pastor of that church was a guy. He was a what I would call a Kentucky Foothills holiness preacher. And so he was part Pentecostal, part, I'm sure at some point this man handled some snakes, okay? He's one of those guys. And he'd take a deep breath between each and every statement. And so as a seven-year-old, it was hard to keep track of him, and everything was over my head, and so I'd often just color during service. But on this particular Sunday, he was talking about the end of the world. And the best I could make it out, he made a prediction of when this would happen. He said, it's going to happen on September 13th of this year. So as a seven-year-old, I left there. I was totally freaked out, okay, uh, because the apocalypse is a scary proposition for a kid, and you, you understand that. Uh, and so I started keeping track of the days. 
And I would ask my mom every day. I was like, well, what's the date? And she's like, it's, it's uh, August 25th. I'm like, okay. Well, a couple days later, what's the date, mom? What's the date? Uh, September 5th. I'm like, okay. Mom, what's the date? It's September 13th. Mom, I can't go to school today. Okay. And she's like, why can't you go to school today? She wasn't at service the day Brother Byron Jessup made this prediction. And I was like, it's the end of the world. She thought I was crazy. She's like, you're going to school. This is just some sort of excuse. And so we went to, I went to school. And uh, on this day, we, we went outside for recess. And I hid under a bush the whole recess. My teacher came over. She's like, what in the world are you doing? I said, I'm hiding. She said, who are you hiding from? I said, Jesus, he's coming back. <laughs> Obviously, here we are. Dozens and dozens of years later, and we're still here. So Brother Byron Jessup was wrong, and that seven-year-old me was kind of relieved about that. You see, there's some faulty and unhelpful ways to think about the end of the world. And what I'm going to humbly ask all of you to do is let's set aside all of our preconceived ideas, notions about all that we've ever heard about the end of the world, and let's look really closely at what Jesus said. And let's figure out together, let's explore this together, let's have a conversation together about how history will unfold and how that glorious day will come upon us. Can we do that? Mark chapter 13, let's all stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to begin in verse 1. As Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While I was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asking privately, tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for all of your promises. Uh, Lord, you are a promise keeper. Everything you say is true. Lord, you are completely trustworthy. We can put all of our faith and confidence in you. And that's why we come here today, Lord, because we acknowledge that you sit in the heavenly place, high above the heavens, Lord. You sit on your throne. And it's an unshakable kingdom that you rule, Lord. And so you see the universe from a perspective that we can never even imagine. We can never even dream. Lord, you know better than us what's best for us. And so, Lord, we submit today to your word. I pray that you will give us ears that are ready to hear and eyes that are ready to see and a heart that's ready to receive, Lord, what you have for us. Lord, we want to live in your truth so that we can work out your will and your way in our life. I pray, Lord, that you will speak through me. If, Lord, there is any word that I'm about to speak today that is uh, contrary to your will and your way, to your plan and your purpose, Lord, I pray you'll stop me right in my tracks. Lord, I give you this time. We give you this time. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, take a moment and pray for the people around you. Pray for the people that are watching online, especially those that are sick and hurting. Pray for our brothers and sisters of Christ around the world, especially those who are being persecuted. Take a second and pray for uh, the victims of uh, this shooting that took place recently. Pray for the war that's happening in our world. Take a moment and pray for yourself. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, it starts off that Jesus, we see Jesus and his disciples are going out from the temple. And so uh, what that suggests, and, and this is what intelligent Bible readers, we have to do this. You always have to consider what is the context? What, what is going on in this moment that is being conveyed? Because uh, every one of Jesus' statements, they happen in a particular situation. And so it's important for us to consider what led up to this moment. 
And so uh, this is the end of a day. They're leaving the temple. They've done all they can do in the temple for this day. And this actually is the last time that Jesus will ever be in the temple. So this is a momentous event. What happened during the, be- the beginning of that day? You'll remember uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 20, if you want to turn there, you can see that this all started, this day started. They were on their way to the temple. It was early in the morning, and they passed a fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before. You remember Jesus was hungry the day before this. And he saw a fig tree that was in bloom. Now, these fig trees, when they were in bloom, the, the, the way it worked is there would be fruit on this fig tree. Jesus went over to the fig tree to get a piece of fruit, but it was in bloom, but there was no fruit on it. Jesus got mad because he was hungry, and he says, never again will you produce any fruit. And so today, they're passing this same fig tree, and what do they see in the fig tree? It is completely withered and dried up. Jesus cursed the fig tree, and it was destroyed. Now, this was an object lesson, which we'll see in a second. Then Jesus goes into the temple. He, his authority is questioned by all the ruling elites in the temple, all the Jewish ruling elites. And so Jesus pushes back against them by telling a parable. You'll remember the ter- parable of the wicked tenants. Jesus told this parable about God. He presented God as a vineyard owner. And the vineyard owner had set up a vineyard perfectly situated to produce an abundant crop. A, 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 a plentiful harvest. And then he hired some workers that were going to work this vineyard. Well, he went away for a season and he came back expecting, he was expecting these workers to establish, to cultivate this, this huge abundant crop. But instead, the workers were wicked workers and they didn't produce a, an abundant crop. Instead, they produced stinking, rotting fruit. And the owner, God, would send back his representatives, to check on the harvest. And every time he'd send back a representative, these uh, workers, these wicked workers, would beat God's, the, the vineyard owner's representatives. And he would, they would stone them, and then they would kill them. And, and finally, God, the vineyard owner, he sends back his one and only son to uh, hold the work, wicked workers accountable. But they rejected the son, and they killed the son. And they thought, we're going to kill the son, and the inheritance will be ours. And so uh, Jesus asked a rhetorical question at the end of this parable. He says, what's going to happen to these workers when they stand in judgment before God? And the religious leaders, before they can even think about what they're saying, they say, those wicked workers will come to a wretched end. And in that moment, their eyes are open and they realize that Jesus has been talking about them the whole time. That it was these men that God had perfectly positioned in the temple with the word, with the law, um, with the plan and purpose of God to go and produce an abundant crop, a bountiful harvest that would bless God's name. The glory and goodness of God was supposed to spread throughout the whole earth through this particular group of men. And they'd be given this authority, but they didn't uh, praise God. They didn't worship God correctly. Instead, they despised God and they, they rejected God's one and only son. And as a result, Jesus condemns these wicked workers, these religious elite who are over the temple in the same way he, he uh, cursed the fig tree because they had the appearance that they were working for God, but they weren't producing the fruit. They were living in this perfectly situated vineyard, but they weren't doing what God wanted them to do. And so Jesus curses them. And all of Matthew chapter 23, which is a parallel passage to the one that we've been exploring, the whole chapter is Jesus condemning these religious elites, the Jewish ruling class. He, He says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He calls them. He says, you are blind guides. He says, you are a whitewashed tomb. He says, you're a brood of vipers. You're hellbound. He says that you will not escape the judgment of God. And then he begins to make his way out of the temple for the very last time. And it's at that point, it's at that point that one of his disciples says to him, and this is kind of funny to me, teacher, look at what massive stones and what impressive buildings. You ever had a friend and they can't handle awkward situations? That was one of the disciples because it got real heated. Jesus is like, you're going to hell to all the religious leaders. And they're like, oh, what about the weather? You know, can you believe these massive stones? Now, that makes sense because the temple was impressive. Uh, it was one of the ancient wonders of the world. Uh, it was 35 acres in size which is massive. Our property here is about five to six acres. So you multiply that multiple times over and you get the size of the temple. And that's the courtyard and the temple structures itself. It was made of perfectly um, squared stones, massive stones weighing as much as one million pounds. They had marble columns lining the temple. The marble columns 
Uh, if we took three grown men and we stretched our arms around it together, we wouldn't be able to, to make our arms go all the way around. These were massive, massive marble columns, and the whole temple was overlaid in gold to the point that when you walked over the Mount of Olives, which was the best location to see the temple, uh, when the sun reflected off of the gold on the temple, it looked like a star right there on the hill. It was, it was an impressive, a, like worldwide phenomenon. People would come from every corner of the world to visit the temple. A historian in that time, they, he said, if the world had been given 10 shares of beauty, Jerusalem had eight of the 10 shares. So that's, that's what we're talking about with this, this temple. And, and it made sense because all of these people, all the Jewish people during this time, and even Jesus' disciples, they believed that Jerusalem was the holy temple. And, or Jesus, Jerusalem was the holy city, and the temple was the place on the planet to meet with the one and only true God. And that these men who were over the temple, these were the representatives that made it possible for common people like me and you to have any sort of connection with the God of the universe. And so this is, it would be appropriate for this temple to be so glorious. And the disciples, as they're on their way out, they're like, man, Jesus, just look at this. This is awesome. Don't you think? And look at what Jesus says, verse 2. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. So this is what Jesus is predicting. He is saying that there is judgment on this city because the whole city, all the Jewish people, all the ruling Jewish ruling class, they rejected God's Messiah. They rejected God's one and only son in the same way the wicked workers in the vineyard rejected the only son. And so there's judgment on these people. And, and as part of the judgment, the temple, the city, and the whole temple system would be utterly destroyed. Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now, it's important to know the dates of this. Jesus said this around A.D. 30. Okay? This is towards the end of his life. This is the last week of his life. Around A.D. 30, Jesus says that the temple and Jerusalem is going to be utterly destroyed. Now, you got to understand, the Jewish people, Jewish ruling class, they looked at Jerusalem as an eternal city. This, God's anointing is on the city, so there's no way God is ever going to allow this city to be destroyed again. There's no way God will ever allow his temple to be destroyed again. They thought this was going to stand forever and ever and ever. Okay, And so Jesus says, no, that's not going to happen. Actually, it's going to be completely destroyed. Forty years later, now this is important, we'll come back to it in a couple weeks. Forty was how a Jewish person considered a generation. A generation was 40 years. So Jesus says, uh, it's going to happen, AD 30. AD 70, 40 years later, the Jewish people in Jerusalem revolted against Roman rule. They threw a big fit. The response from the Roman people was to send, the Roman uh, government empire sent their, their most powerful legion to Jerusalem. And over about five years, they sieged the city. The last five months, they sieged the city. So that means nothing in, nothing out. They completely encircled the city. They wouldn't let anybody leave. They wouldn't let anybody bring anything in. And eventually they breached the walls. They burned the city and the temple. They carted off all the valuable material. They tore down every single wall. One historian said after the fact, he said that after they were done, you could not even tell there once stood a city there. That's how utterly they destroyed it. Where is the temple now? I think I got a picture up here of uh, rubble from the city. You can still go, if you go to Jerusalem there, you see, this is, this is all that's left of the Jerusalem of Jesus' day. This event marked the end of an age. No more temple, no more sacrifices, no more high holy days. The millennia-old Jewish way of people relating to God was totally obliterated. You, you realize there isn't a temple now. There's no more sacrifices. Nobody's making sacrifices anymore. You know why that is? Because when Rome came in and they tore down the temple, they also burned all the genealogies, all the records. And so Jewish people can't accurately track who are the Levites because you had to be from the tribe of Levi in order to be a priest. And so now there are no more legitimate priests. So there's nobody to offer the sacrifices, not legitimate sacrifices. And so it was all destroyed. This was the end of an age. Now, you can understand how this would make Jewish people feel like this was the end of the world. Their assumption was this temple system was going to go on forever and ever. Jerusalem was going to go on forever and ever. The temple was going to go on forever and ever. This was God's plan and purpose for the world. And so for it to be totally destroyed, this would feel like the end of the world. Imagine 
today if China invaded America and burned the White House to the ground and shredded up the Constitution? You would feel like this was the end of the world. You remember how you felt after 9-11? You remember how that felt? It felt like this was the beginning of the end of the world. And so that is the state of mind Jesus' disciples have as they approach Jesus after Jesus has said, all of Jerusalem, the whole temple is going to be totally obliterated. Verse 3, while I was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, this is the best place to see the temple. They're overlooking the temple. Uh, Jesus sitting right there. The temple is shining in uh, the sunlight like a star. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked Jesus privately. They come to him. They're concerned. Jesus, we need more details. Verse 4, tell us, when will these things happen? What things are they talking about? What things are they talking about? Haven't we just been talking about, Jesus just told them the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So what are they talking about? What are they asking these things? When they say these things, they're talking about the temple in Jerusalem. They're talking about the temple system, correct? It's obvious. Okay, so they ask, when will these things happen and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so they're so concerned because this feels like the end of the world. Jesus predicted what they feel is like the end of the world. And they're asking, okay, when will these things happen and what will the signs be that these events are about to take place? When will the temple and Jerusalem be destroyed and what are the signs that will accompany it? Now, today is the introduction to this idea. But over the next few weeks, I'm going to present to you a position in which we'll look at Mark 13 as not primarily about the culmination of history. Instead, Mark 13 is Jesus answering a very specific question of when Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed and what signs will accompany that event. I would also present to you that the entirety of the book of Revelation, 90% of the book of Revelation, is also answering the same question. Okay, now, I know this is an idea that many of you is brand new to you, And so you give me three weeks, and I will unpack it. I will show you how it's right here in the text. Okay. Uh, Take note of how Jesus begins his teaching. Mark 13, 5. Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. Now, I have a question for you. Have people throughout history used apocalyptic language to deceive many? Right? Have charismatic people come along claiming to have some special relationship with God, some special revelation from God about the end of the world? Have people done that? I'll remind you of a man named Jim Jones. How many of you remember Jim Jones? Jim Jones was part of what was known as the People's Temple. It was in a place uh, right around uh, uh, San Francisco, California in the 70s. And Jim Jones, he started off as a normal preacher, normal preacher that you could find on any street corner in America. Over time, he developed this idea about himself that he had some sort of uh, exclusive access to the truth of God. And so he could unpack, he had like a special revelation from God, and he set himself up as a savior. He convinced a thousand people to quit their jobs, sell their homes, leave their friends and family, and move to Guana with them, where they built what he called an apostolic socialist community. And, and they built this town. Can you guess the name of the town? Jonestown, isn't that appropriate? Jonestown. They readied themselves for what they called a translation. And that translation was going to come about, and when it came about, there would would, uh, be a utopian spiritual society. And they would achieve this utopian society through a revolutionary suicide. And they would train for months and months and months for this revolutionary suicide event. Sometime in 1978, over 900 people drank Kool-Aid laced with cyanide, and they died there in the jungle. This is where we get the term, they drank the Kool-Aid. Jesus says, we've got to be careful in dealing with men who claim to have unique and exclusive access to the truth of God, who who claim to have a special revelation about the end. Because here's the truth, all of us in our heart, we're like seven-year-old Jeff sitting in the Revival Tabernacle listening to Brother Byron Jephson. 
And when somebody starts talking about the end of the world, we are wired to turn our ears on and open our eyes wide, and and it's going to receive a special attention from all of us. That is near and dear. That is very sensitive to our heart. And so, unfortunately, there have been so many people throughout the, the years who have used that special attention you can garner just by saying the end of the world, and they'll use it to manipulate people. In 1988, Edgar Wisnant, a former NASA scientist, he published a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 18 or 1988. How many of you remember that book? A handful of you. 88 Reasons It Will Happen in 1988. I think that's where Brother Byron Jessup got his ideas. Uh, Wisnant predicted that it would, the end of the world would happen on, between September 11th and September 13th of that year, 1988. In 1989... He published another book, The Final Shout, Rapture Report, 1989. Guess what he predicted? The end of the world in 1989. In 1993, he published another book, 23 Reasons Pre-Tribulation Rapture Will Happen in 1993. In 1994, he published another book, and now The Earth's Destruction by Fire. I wonder if these books came with a money-back guarantee. People, they quit their jobs, and they sold their homes, and they dropped out of school. In response to reading this man who set himself up as an expert and predicted that the world was going to end. And these dates, they all came and went, resulting in a whole lot of Christians experiencing a whole lot of disillusionment. Maybe, my friends, it isn't wise to spend so much time thinking about end-time prophecy. Maybe it isn't wise to subscribe on YouTube to these end-time preachers. Maybe it isn't wise to spend so much time on YouTube watching these video, these detailed video uh, predictions. This stuff is enthralling. This stuff, you start talking about the apocalypse, you start talking about the end times, this is a great way to increase your subscriber count on YouTube. But what has been the result of all of these predictions throughout the years, of these deceptive people have used this powerful language to manipulate people? What's been the result? There's been a whole lot of unsuccessful predictions. You remember in 2020 when all of these, many of these end time preachers, these apocalyptic preachers, these end time prophecy guys, you remember when they started predicting, oh, well, Trump is going to get back in office. You remember this? And it went on for months and months and people come to me and you're like, well, you know, the so-and-so, he said this is going to happen. And then what happened? It didn't happen. What's been the result of all of these predictions? Death and destitution, Jamestown or Jonestown, Waco, I could go on and on. What's been the result? Despair and disillusionment. Think of Brother Byron Jessup's congregation on September 14th, 1988. Look at what Jesus says about when all this will take place. Mark 13, 32. Now concerning the day or hour, what does it say? No one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. What does that tell you about all these predictions? What does that tell you about all these end-time prophecy experts? What does that tell you? No offense to your favorite YouTube preacher or that guy that you found on TV. No offense to them. I'm sure they love Jesus, but Pat Robertson, Perry Stone, John Hagee, and all these other guys that have these huge platforms If Jesus Christ doesn't know the day or hour, those men have no idea. Jesus is teaching us, and he doesn't want us to get caught up in predictions. He wants to give us the tools to perseverance. Now, when you study the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, the whole whole motivation behind the book of Revelation, this is what you're going to see over and over and over again, is to persevere. The book of Revelation over and over again says, to the one who overcomes will receive the crown of life. And so this is what Jesus is doing. The point of his message isn't about the details of the end times. Instead, it is about avoiding despair even when it feels like the world is coming to an end. Jesus is empowering us with knowledge of the apocalyptic ages that we're going to go through 
so that we won't be paralyzed by fear, but will instead be agents of hope and grace in a very dark world. Verse 7, Mark chapter 13, when you hear of wars and rumors of the wars, Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed when you hear about wars and rumors of war. Is that what we generally do? in the way that we think about the end times. Every time we hear about a war, a rumor of war, immediately one of our primary thoughts is, well, I guess this is the beginning of the end. I guess this is the apocalypse. Jesus says, don't worry about those things. Now, over the next 40 years in the disciples' life, between AD 30 and AD 70, there is one Roman war or rumor of war 40 years straight. In, in that span of time, the Roman Empire went through four different emperors. Can you imagine the upheaval? Four different emperors, in about a two-year span, they went through three of them. Wars and rumors of wars, over and over and over. In our day and age, we go from one war to the next, from Iran to Iraq to Afghanistan to Ukraine. America is 245 years old. Do you know how many years of peace we've had in 245 years? 15, that's it, 15 years. And during every single war, some prophet some uh, uh, apocalyptic end-time preacher came along and said, well, this is the end of the war. This is the, I mean, this is the end of the world. The, the end is near, and everybody starts freaking out. What does Jesus say that we should do when we hear of wars and rumors of war? Don't be alarmed. Why? Why? These things must take place, is what Jesus says. These things must take place. On the night Jesus was betrayed, the uh, temple guards came and they found Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember this story? They found him in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, the disciples start, they start freaking out because they know what's happening. And Peter, he pulls out a sword, he starts swinging around. I don't know if he, he's a fisherman, you know, he's not a swordsman, who knows? He accidentally cuts some guy's ear off. Oh, I'm sure he's aiming for his head, but he missed and got his ear. Jesus picks the ear up. He puts it back on a guy's head. And as he's healing this man who's come to arrest him, which says a lot about Jesus, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 26, verse 52. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he'll provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus says, at any point, I could shut this down. At any point, I could destroy everybody that's come against me. But watch what he says, verse 54. How then... If I did that, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Paul had been arrested and uh, he, he had, uh, is now being shipped through the Mediterranean Sea to Rome. And he's on his way to see Caesar stand before him in trial and probably be executed. As they're on this ship in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, there becomes a huge storm. And it's the type of storm that even the sailors who live on the sea start freaking out. They start losing their mind. I want, you to re I want to read to you what Paul says, Acts chapter 27, verse 23. For last night, Paul says, an angel of God that I belong to and I serve, he stood by me. And he said, don't be afraid. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Paul says, don't be afraid to all these men who are on the boat. And this feels like the end of their life. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. It is necessary, it must happen. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe that God, it, that God, I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. Paul says, don't be afraid. God told me I must stand before Caesar and so you'll be spared. Do you see the theme here? Jesus says, I must be crucified. Paul says, I must stand before Caesar. Even when it appears like your world has flipped upside down, listen to me, friends, God is still on the throne. Even when it appears like your world is coming to an end, he will, my God, will accomplish his good purpose in your life, still. So in every war that we fight, in all the rumors of war that we hear, listen to me, Jesus wants you to know God saw it coming well in advance, and he signed off on it. Why? Because there is a plan and a purpose for your problems, your pain, and your plight. It all fits into his perfect plan for your life and for this world. You see, because of Jesus, we can confront what looks like the apocalypse, what appears like a cataclysmic event, what appears earth-shattering, what appears world-ending. We can confront all those things with hope. Why? Because verse 7 says, it is 
is not the end. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. It is not the end. The wars and the rumors of wars are not the end. Ukraine, Russia, China, this is not the end. Soaring inflation, crashing stock market, this is not the end, Jesus says. Disaster, disease, depression, a diagnosis that you get from the doctor, a divorce, destitution, death, whatever it is that feels like the end, Jesus is telling you it is not the end. Because in Jesus' name, we have given permission to bravely confront the apocalypse. Because there was an earthquake. Jesus says there are gonna be earthquakes and famines. There was an earthquake. Happened on a Sunday morning when all hope seemed lost. And that earthquake rolled away the stone so that Jesus' disciples could peer into the grave. And what did they see? They saw an empty tomb. What that tells me is that Jesus Christ has swallowed up death in victory. We serve a resurrected king, and because he overcame, you will overcome. Because he rose, you will rise. Because he lives, you will live. This is not the end. Amen? Look at verse eight. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Jesus affirms for all of us, nation, it will, nations will come and go. Kingdoms are gonna rise and they're gonna fall. The foundations of your world, they will be shaken. But Jesus says, don't look at this as the end. What does he say? What is it? It's not the end, what is it? It's the beginning. The beginning of what? Birth pains. About four weeks ago, my wife woke up at 4 a.m. and she said, we need to go to the doctor. And then she proceeded to give me TMI entirely and explain all the details of why we need to go to the doctor. And I'm like, listen, can we just do this again at like 8 a.m.? Can we wait till then? She punched me and then we went to the ER. Over the course of the next few hours, the pressure got more intense and her water broke. And she started having contractions. And then, like I told you last week, she went entirely insane for about 30 minutes. I wasn't sure if it was a delivery or demonic possession for that 30 minutes. But I got to tell you, during that whole season, that, that whole few hours, as intense as it got, there was never despair. There was never despair. Why? Because we knew that all of these things were signs of something beautiful that was about to come into the world. And here's the truth of the matter. All of us can endure a lot of pain if there is a promising solution at the end. Okay, so Jesus is telling us, Jesus is telling us, don't get in despair. There there is pain associated with the progress towards a glorious goal. There's pain associated with this good work that God is going to accomplish in the culmination of history. There's pain. There's pain in this world, but it isn't terminal cancer. Hear me. It isn't the pain that you experience in this world. It isn't terminal cancer that ends in death. Instead, it is labor pains that culminates in new life. Do you see the distinction? All the pain, all the turmoil that we see on the news. When I open my Twitter feed this morning and I see there's another mass shooting in Buffalo, all the pain, all the suffering. Well, it's not terminal cancer that ends in death. What Jesus is telling us, it's labor pains that ends in new life, that culminates in new life. Jesus says that the apocalypse isn't the end of the world. He says it is the end of an obsolete age. Imagine that you're a, a Jewish Christian there on the Mount of Olives, and you see the smoke rising from Jerusalem as it's been leveled to the ground. This place that you thought would be an eternal city, this place that you thought was instrumental to the plan and purposes of God is totally destroyed. It felt like the end of the world. But this is what we know 2,000 years later. This is what we know. That was not the end. That was the beginning. It was the end of the temple system. It was the end of hypocritical church religious leaders in, the, in Jerusalem. It was the end of them. It was the end of the sacrificial system, but it was the beginning of the church. 
And aren't you glad that we don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year? Aren't you glad that we don't have to find a spotless animal to sacrifice to the Lord every year? Aren't you glad that our righteousness is based on Jesus Christ alone? Aren't you glad that that age ended and now we're living in the church age, a much more glorious age? What felt like the end of the world, it wasn't the end, it was the beginning. What if the wars and the earthquakes and the famines and the plagues that we see all around us are not signs of the world slowly dying? What if they are the contractions that God's people have to push through with blood, sweat, and tears in order to birth a new and glorious age? Based on this this verse, history is not unfolding to death. It is unfolding towards life. How you answer that question, is history unfolding towards death or is history unfolding towards life? How you answer that question is going to dictate the way you live, whether you realize it or not. I'll give you an example. I want you to imagine that you're a worker on the Titanic. How many of y'all seen that movie? Okay, put yourself there. You got those fancy clothes on, you're a worker. The captain of the ship, he comes on the intercom or whatever they had during Titanic age. And he says, we just hit an iceberg and the ship is going down. And so you come out of your cabin, you open the door. And as you open the door to your cabin, you hear that the door is squeaky. You're going to go and find some WD-40 and fix that. You go out of your cabin door and you walk down the highway and you see a pile of dirty laundry right outside of a guest uh, quarters. Now that's generally your job. You're going to pick that up, go take it to the laundromat. You, you walk through the dining room, and you see there's all sorts of dirty dishes from the guests that are on the dining tables. You're going to gather those up and take them to the kitchen. You, you get to the steps, and you see there's all sorts of water pulling up uh, on, on the steps there because, you know, you hit, just hit an iceberg. You're going to go and grab a mop and start mopping that up just for safety. You get up on the deck, and you see Jack and Rose they're paying guests, right? And so guests first. And so you're going to make your, you're going you're gonna to open the way and say, you know, guests first on the lifeboat. Are you going to do that? No, you're not going to do any of those things. Why? Why? The ship is going down. To hell with the squeaky doors. To hell with the laundry. To hell with the dirty dishes. To hell with the water that's standing on the thing. To hell with Jack and Rose. The ship is going down. Now listen to me. Listen to me. For 200 years, the American church has been totally preoccupied with the end of the world. It started with the Schofield Bible around 1800, which was a big proponent of that. It was one of the first study Bibles ever brought to America. It made its way into seminaries. It made its way into the pulpits. It made its way into these fictionalized books that we all read, like the Left Behind series. And for 200 years, our spiritual leaders have been telling us, in every platform they could tell us, the ship is going down. Isn't that the message? The ship is going down. The world is getting progressively worse. And this is the the implication. The gospel can't help. The church is powerless to affect any change. The ship is going down. So just buckle up and wait for Jesus to bring you the rescue ship. Isn't that what our church has been telling us for 200 years? And how has the church responded to that message? The way you would expect to hell with the school system, to hell with the marketplace, to hell with Main Street of Winchester, to hell with entertainment, to hell with all of it. Let the fishes have the school system. Let the fishes have all the businesses. Let the fishes have the courthouse. Let the fishes have the culture. It doesn't matter. The world is going to end in 1988. Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to save me out of this hellhole, and everything's going to burn up. So why should I worry about the squeaky door? Why should I mop up the water? None of it matters. But guess what? The ship is still afloat, isn't it? And it is in despair. Here we are, here we are, years and years later after they said the world was going to end, and now it resembles a whole lot more like hell than it did in 1988. Why is that? Well, couldn't it be that it's because Christians abdicated their responsibility to be the light and the dark uh, light in the darkness and to be the salt of the earth. Christians, what if this is not the end? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus says all these signs 
are not the end, it's the beginning. What if, brothers and sisters, what if we are not living in the last age? What if instead we are part of the early church? What if Jesus doesn't decide to come back for 10,000 years? What kind of world are you leaving for your kids? What kind of world are you leaving for your grandkids? What kind of world are you leaving for your great, 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 great grandkids? We don't think about that. And so we don't build. We don't try to influence culture. We don't try and mess with politics. We don't try and make the world a better place because the world's going to hell and I'm going to heaven, so what do I care? It's a faulty way of looking through the world. What? kind of world are you building? Are you pushing through the pain, laboring with Christ to deliver into this world a better and brighter age? I want to read to you a parable. I pray this convicts you. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And what? What did they think? right there on the screen. What did they think? They thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away, which is what we've been told for 200 years. Therefore, he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. He called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas and told them, engage, engage in hiding out in your holy huddle until Jesus comes back. Is that what he says? Go and hide somewhere from all the craziness in the world. Do not preoccupy yourself with any of it. Is that what he says? Thank you. Yeah. Amen. No, he doesn't say that. He says, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received authority to be king, he summoned those servants he, get, he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has turned 10 more minas. Well done, good servant, he told them. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you. Since you're a harsh man, you collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. I went and I buried it in the backyard. I went and I hid out in my holy huddle, just looking up to the heavens, waiting for Jesus to come back. That's what I did the whole time that you were gone. He told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil, evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man collecting what I didn't deposit, reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mina away from him, give it to the one who has 10. But they said, Master, he has 10 minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. The one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. Bring here these enemies of mine who did not want to rule me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. Friends, I have absolutely no idea when Jesus is coming back. I have no idea, but I do know this. When he comes back, I hope he finds me working. When he comes back, I hope he finds me working. It is time, my friends, that once again, we engage in business until Jesus decides to return. Amen? It is time that we wage a holy war against this godless culture that we're living in. It is time that we shake up the foundations of this crooked generation. It is time that we shine a light in the darkness. It is time that we get to work to bring an end to the age of depression and darkness and drugs and disease and depravity and destitution in Winchester, Kentucky. It is time that we usher in the kingdom of God for his glory and for the good of these people. It's time. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. We know that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not be able to hold it back. We know that Christ is ruling on the throne even now in heaven. We know that the gospel has a power to save 
We know that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship him in glory. We know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We know that Christ is the king. The victory is won. The earth is our inheritance. And so, friends, I am asking you to live like you believe that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that we are all convicted and inspired today to stop just putting our head in the sand and pretending like none of this is our responsibility to fix. Lord, you have left the church as the hope of the world in Jesus' name. And I pray that each and every one of us will take responsibility in whatever influence that we have to bring heaven to earth. Lord, help us to look at all those creaky little doors in our life. Help us to see the dirty laundry that we could pick up. Help us to see the water that we can mop up. Help us to see the people that we can lead to Jesus. Help us to see the positions of authority in our city that we can take and use biblical principles to lead the city into a glorious age. Help us to build businesses that glorify God. Help us to teach our children the ways of, of Jesus that, that generations and generations and generations will be blessed and blessed and blessed. Lord, we cannot do this unless you empower us. We cannot do this unless you teach us. And so, Lord, we ask today that you will have your way in us, both today, tomorrow, and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing a song of invitation. Here is the truth. I always say this, but it is the truth. We're all living in our last days. In the grand scheme of things, of eternity, 70, 80 years you get on this planet is not very long, is it? And so here's the truth. We don't know when we're going to have to stand before God in judgment. And so you need to make sure that you're right with him. Are you here today and there is something standing between you and God? Are you here today and you know in your heart of hearts, God has gifted you with all sorts of things. And instead of you using it for the glory of God, you went and you buried it in your backyard. If that's you today and you haven't surrendered everything to Jesus, can I encourage you? Please come and talk to me. Let me tell you, let me pray with you about your next steps. If you're here today and you're carrying a burden, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, the end of the world has come upon you. It's a divorce. It's a diagnosis. It's a disease. It's depression. Can I ask you, come and kneel at this altar and let one of our prayer warriors pray over you, believing that Jesus Christ works all things out for the good of those who love him. Believing that God's grace is sufficient in your time of weakness, he proves his power. Believing that, come and kneel at this altar. In the back of the room, we have communion elements, crackers and juice. They represent the body and blood of Christ. And when he hang up on that cross, it looked like it was the end, but it was not the end. It was the beginning. And what he is bringing about is a glorious, eternal kingdom of light and goodness and joy and hope and peace. And in Jesus' name, each and every one of you are invited and accepted to be part of that kingdom. Celebrate that today as you take those emblems. As we sing this song, come.